Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Welcome again, folks. You're on the grill with Beef Central, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Today's guest is at the pointy end of Australia's red meat industry. He's a bloke who gets and expects all the hard questions. Jason Strong, Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Welcome. Thanks, Kerry. Great to talk to you. Look, uh, let's start with the good news. Uh, you, your recent report focusing on sustainability was very sanguine, especially about carbon emissions. There is some detail I want to discuss later, but it would seem for the moment that from your report, MLA has this issue with all its uh, extraordinary impact well and truly under control. Is that a fair comment? Um, so far, Kerry, I think it is. There's a lot of work to be done. Like There's a lot of work to be done in this space. But I think what MLA and the industry has been able to demonstrate over the last few years is that this is a, a real challenge for us in how we get our arms around uh, what is our industry's engagement with the environment impact and how do we manage that and what can we do about it. And I think the beauty of what we've seen so far is that finding solutions, investing in technologies that are going to make a difference uh, are certainly things that we can make really good progress on. And I think that's what we've been able to demonstrate so far. So, yeah, it's making good progress. I want to get to the technology shortly, but MLA has spent so far $200 million and plans to spend another $150 million in the next few years. That is a lot of money. Where are the measurable benefits for Australian red meat producers? Yeah, it's really important to keep that sort of thing in context, isn't it? So, yeah, they're, they're big numbers. But last year, the red meat sector turned over $67 billion. So we've got an industry that has turnover of $67 billion, 70 75% reliant on export markets, growing levels of interest and awareness about the industry's interaction with impact, whether it's perceived or actual on the environment. And you know we're in a position where we've got you know, this growing level of preferential access with markets around the world. So... Yes, they're big numbers from an investment point of view, but I think absolutely justified given the position of our industry, the size of the industry, and and what we have at risk in the short, medium, long term as far as not not just the uh, sustainable position of the industry, so being able to maintain all that, but being able to grow the you know, the value and and you know, size of the the sale and value of our industry going forward. Now, where you are. In- what you've done and where the industry is at in terms of carbon emissions. Is this good news getting into the consumer world? I don't think so. What, what's your view on that? Is it getting out there or is it being told to the converted? So it's getting out there but not enough. I think some of what we, we do with our communications as an industry is talk to each other and all of us, but particularly MLA and, and others of us that are in the types of positions we are, have to keep working really hard on on getting our message out to to consumers and to the customers and and like you flag, I think we talk to each other you know, pretty well. But one of the big things we did this last year was uh, start or last eight eight months I suppose it's been now is we started using influencers and for a, a reasonably low cost investment compared to how much advertising and comms can cost you, we've engaged with. 30-odd influencers on social media who spread the positive message about uh, the red meat sector. So finding new ways that engage with the broader community and consumers is is really important. And 
and all of us finding ways to do that, all of us finding ways to you know, point forwards. Mm, I could offer myself for a couple of hundred gorillas to be handy, say I like steak, that would be the nice job, <laughs> would be nice job if you can get it. Um, hey, absolutely, absolutely it is. And one of the interesting comments we get, Terry, is um, we, we put pictures of these influences up when we do presentations and most of our stakeholders, including me and others, you know, we look at it and it's like, well, I've never seen any of these people before. Um, <laughs> and that's actually the point, right? So we're, we're not the actual target market for changing the uh, messaging around you know, how we think about this. It's yeah, getting I, out to the broader community. I think, I mean, I was talking about this the other day to some friends and an old rooster there, same similar age as myself, said, why don't you put a big ad in the paper? And I said, I'm the only one I know who reads the paper, so why would you do that? <laughs> So you've got to you've got to get those under twenty fives. I would suggest, Jason, is there, and you've got to use that TikTok and everything else that they use. I assume that um, that's part of the agenda as well. It really is, Kerry, and it's understanding those demographics and it's understanding how they access the media. You know, your comment about paper papers is exactly right. You know, we as individuals we might have a preference, but understanding. The, the broader community consumer demographics and the way that they consume and, and seek out media and information is is really important. So we've got we've got multiple channels that we we, we focus on, and, and this new influencer piece, it, it's it's working incredibly well as far as the the reach goes, and we're going to keep down that path and keep measuring uh, how how that works, but. But we're still going to do stuff in papers as well. Yeah, uh, I, we, I, we, we do need to get to everybody. I assume it'll be uh, public knowledge or knowledge to your subscribers and members that the amount of money you're paying to these influencers. Uh, it varies, but in the whole scheme of things, it's not a lot. So the whole okay. program um, at the moment, you know, less than a million dollars. So the context of our budget being three hundred odd. So that. That's that total mark. That's that total program at the minute. Yes, your uh, carbon message uh, to getting to farmers and grazers appears to be spreading. I've had some good feedback on your carbon team talks at various venues around Australia. They're called Meet Up in the North, I understand, and Beef Up in the South. I assume these talks will be ongoing. Absolutely, they will. And I'm taking it as a good sign. You know, I got in strike yesterday because there was a. A, a broader region that we weren't going to have a beef up in next year. Um, so, so that's good. And we've got to get our stats on and make sure we cover off on that region. But the, you know, people are looking for the information and, and they're working well, Kerry, that, that local approach of being able to get out to multiple locations. And one of the things we do with those events is we engage with a, a local planning committee as well. So that, that helps us with spreading the message in that area, but also and making sure we've got a connection with the, the current issues in that region as well. So there's the broader messaging, time, but also... And there's a timetable schedule for these uh, MLA talks on your website, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely there is, yeah. Now, one thing I like, uh, a tool you're using is your email hotline. Um, any questions on carbon can be addressed here, the carbon emissions, and the address is interesting, cn30 at mla.com.au, carbon neutral 30, I assume that stands for. Yeah, carbon neutral by twenty thirty. That's right. And how is uh, how is that proceeding? You're getting much feedback or input there. Uh, we get a bit, but not. It's not a it's not a huge flow of traffic, and it's a little bit like your question around spreading the message, uh, providing as many ways as we can that people can access the information or ask their questions is important. So we'll we'll keep at all of those types of channels, and we'll and we'll promote them. Uh, we'll keep promoting them more broadly. So we we don't get a lot of uh, volume. Um, but it's in, important that we have 
that ability for yeah, any producer to engage with us. How they absolutely how they that's what they pay their money for to ask you hard questions. That's right. Or easy that's questions. That's exactly key yeah. one. Mm. Now, look, uh, the frontline programs and the much-hyped uh, Asparagopsis, uh, mm-hmm. it had all the promise in the world, but some inevitable issues. Where's the great seaweed experiment, uh, experiment stand at present? It's still going well. Not surprisingly to anybody, it's, it's not delivering world peace, but it was never going to. Yeah. But being one of the first, to demon, being one of the first products to demonstrate the ability to make a significant reduction in methane production by using it as a supplement, it, it obviously got a you know, massive amount of publicity, which was great, and, and it deserved because it makes it did a couple of things. You know, it really dispelled the myth about you can't do anything about this. Well, you can. You can do something about it, and that's what it demonstrated incredibly well. And there's multiple trials that are now following on in the, the commercial and close to commercial space about how that's going to be used and applied. And they're largely being done by the companies that are either growing or providing the product or planning to use the product. And uh, as those results come through, they'll make choices on what they do commercially. We all know about feedlot cattle, of course, but rangeland cattle, where the difficulty will be, how's the scenario where they're trying to put this into asparagopsis into block lick box or even water, for example? Yeah, so that, that work's coming along, I think it's coming along as well, that uh, the, both, like you say, blocks and, and water are, are both some of the options for the supplements and whether it's asparagopsis or something else, but certainly looking at the options for those and, and how it might be delivered into uh, any form of supplement, whether in a suspended oil or whether it's freeze-dried or how it's managed, that's being worked through. But being this first trigger and giving people confidence to then further invest one of the best demonstrations we had that from that is with grilled burgers. Uh, grilled burgers, the, the burger chain um, that's been growing pretty well the last few years that are very focused on grass-fed product. They've actually just released a burger option, so a patty option, which is from cattle that have been fed asparagopsis in the pack. And they've been working with uh, Sea Forest, the, the people who grow Barragopsis in Tasmania, and they've done this under their own steam. Sea Forest and Grilled and uh, the, and UNA have done the trials and, and validated the, the impact. So they're selling a, the option to upgrade your burger patty to a methane reduced reduced patty that's got sixty seven percent less methane. Sixty seven. So, oh, so that's reduced. Is there a premium being paid for that product? Absolutely. Yeah, you can up, you can upgrade your burger, and I just I'm not sure what the quantum is, but but it's a it's a premium patty that you can pay for. At grilled now, which is a, a methane reduced patty. Again, it's the first of those, but what it demonstrates is commercial organisations that are consumer facing that have picked up with the commercial company Seaforest that's out there finding ways to get the technology adopted. And they've done trials themselves with UNE, obviously with the providers of the product to find a way to get it through to end users and consumers. So it's great to see how this is getting you know, picked up through the supply chain. I, I think producers will be keen to see that there's a premium being paid for this product now. Time for a quick break. Our guest today, Jason Strong, MLA Managing Director. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. 
Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, Jason Strong. He's the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia. There's also a slow-release uh, capsule or bolus. Uh, takes me back to the NLRS days. Uh, you're putting into cattle. What's, what's the story here? It's still in testing phase, and only just this morning I got contacted by uh, another company that is, uh, is looking at the same sort of thing. And, and it's another demonstration, Kerry, of commercial companies picking up opportunities that come off the back of being able to demonstrate that using a supplement can reduce methane. So the, the bolus, and, and pe- people have got varied experiences with boluses over time, but the type of thing that is being looked at at the moment, and we've got uh, a couple of projects on this, and, and we know there's some other work being done on it, is a slow-release biodegradable capsule, a capsule that you put inside the animal's uh, rumen that would have a slow-release of a supplement which would reduce methane, but it would also... Uh, that bolus would then deteriorate over time because we're conscious of you know, what might happen then from a recovery or impact into the, you know, the rendering supply chain afterwards. But that, that works well underway now, and I think we'll see more results of that coming out in the next 6 to 12 months, so it's going to be pretty quick. The intriguing experiment for me is uh, with pre-weaners. I think it's be the right description. What's going on here? What are you feeding them at a pre-weaning stage? Uh, well, it's the same types of principle when they're looking at how do we actually set up an, an animal long-term? So a lot of the initial work that was done with asparagopsis particularly and then with the, the, the bovier product um, after that was in a confined environment. So we feed it to the animal, we know it has an impact, and then you stop feeding it, uh, the methane production goes back up again. And there's, there's work being done on how long can we feed those supplements for, can we actually feed animals supplements earlier in their life and as part of that then uh, change the way that they actually uh, produce methane or, or how they uh, perform over longer periods of time. So it's, it's no different to uh, you know, how we've thought about uh, supplements and, and other uh, nutritional or performance interventions over time as well. So it's trying to take the learnings from how we've used vitamin, mineral, protein, supplements, even things like HCPs. And we know they work differently at different stages of animals' life. And as we know more about these methane reduction supplements, how can we apply those in different settings, which uh, then allow us to to do this technology stacking and get uh, greater benefit uh, across the life of the animal. I'm sure we'll talk more about carbon emissions in the future, Jason, but moving on to cattle numbers in Australia. The MLA released recently 28.8 million cattle in Australia. Forecast to go around to 29.5 million or more. Could you tell our podcast listeners how that number emerges? I mean, how is the count actually done? So we use the ABARES numbers, which are largely survey driven, and they look at the performance and production over time. And you know, we know there's varying views about the size of the herd, whether there's more or less, but the thing I think we focus on, Kerry, is trying to be consistent. So uh, those numbers that we publish are the you know, 28 and change to 29 um, million number is constructed in a very consistent way to how we've done it uh, in the past. So it's looking at that publicly available number and we then also look at uh, what have the production figures been 
uh, to, to date, those slaughter rates and uh, turn off, and then also look at the projected or predicted um, turn off for this next year, and we and we feed those into uh, the model that looks at the herd size. Yeah, I get these numbers, of course, are so important domestically to processes, I'd suspect, especially, and I would think, in, uh, in a whole raft of buyers of Australian beef overseas, they would um, see the numbers and make decisions accordingly. So it's important that they they are as accurate as possible, isn't it? It really is important, Kerry, and those, those turn-off numbers, that, you know, predicting the, the slaughter rates are incredibly important, and, and I think the industry and our team has learned a lot over the last couple of years with some of these other impacts like available labour, for example. Yeah. And, you know, the team had to adjust the turn-off numbers a couple of times last year where uh, we, we just weren't, uh, as an industry, you know, we just weren't able to respond in the way that we thought we might in the our process as many catalysts were available, which has contributed then, of course, to the, growing, the herd growing a bit quicker. Uh, so how we think about that going forward. But I think it also, in addition to helping out or being instructive for the people buying and selling our product from a from a production point of view you know, across the supply chain, our producers and feedlots and processes, I think it's a really important set of information for us all to collectively then be talking about you know, what are the risks that you know, we need to have in mind when we're thinking about those turn-off numbers yes, and a lot of the important. Given the, the, the importance, it would if there's a, there's a fair bit of uh, feedback and uh, chatter about these numbers, I'm sure you're aware of them by now, the feedback would have reached you, but uh, if there's enough, would MLA consider an audit by maybe one of the big four accounting firms to test the actual accuracy of your figures? Kerry, we'd, we'd happily look at anything. Um, we, with, like with so much that we do, and particularly with these things that we provide, uh, as public information for the industry, uh, we use everything that we can possibly get our, our hands on. And, and if there's a level of concern, which, which, which has some validity and um, is consistent, then you know, we're, we're more than happy to, to look at you know, whatever will, will make the numbers more you know, reliable. And, and probably more importantly, anything that helps us project better, because we can, if you go to the extreme, you know, we can find ways to count all the animals that we currently have, which is, that's interesting. Um, but, but what happens next and what might happen next and what are going to be the drivers and what happens next, that's, that's kind of more important. So whether it's 28 and change, whether it's 29 or 30 or 26, that's interesting. But what are our turn-off numbers going to be? What sort of condition are they going to be? And what sort of carcass weights are they going to have? How reliable and consistent is that going to be? What are the key risks and drivers? that go into those numbers, they, they kind of become more important. So, yeah. so how we manage that balance is, is, uh, is what we're trying to focus on. Look, we'll get to that further later on, but uh, I'm just having a quick look at exports. Down last year, 395,000 tonnes. That is a lot of meat, isn't it? 395,000 tonnes down on the, on the drought year. I, I guess we all expected a downturn, but that is absolutely whopping. Over thirty percent down. Have we bottomed out? Is there more pain to come? Maybe. I think we have bottomed out. When you look at the projected increase in turnoff this year, going up, I think it's you know, six or seven hundred thousand head. So I think we have bottomed out. Because the other thing that's also happened is the increase in carcass weight since two thousand and nineteen. 
so that that number you're talking about that we've come down since that peak in 2019, that's been masked a bit because we've had an increase in carcass weight since then, which is because of the good season, so heavier grass-fed cattle, but also because of the increasing the number of cattle coming through through feedlots. So, so as we grow, so as we come back out the other side, the production output um, will be you know, proportionally higher than what we've seen before relating to the number that we're turning off because you know, we'd expect our carcass weights to, to maintain those heavier rates or close to it. Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion and how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're on the Grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, Jason Strong. He's the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia. Does our recovery in the industry depend on America coming out of drought and a severe diminution in their export volume, giving our products a chance to take those markets back in Asia? It doesn't depend on it, but it'll certainly be helped by it. And it's been really interesting seeing that US dynamic since 2019 and what hasn't happened this time around is the the change hasn't happened as quickly so historically when we've seen that liquidation of the US cow herd uh, that's that's had a knock-on positive impact for us sooner but this has now been going since 2019 and they've been liquidating at a rate as fast or faster than we've ever seen before you know the, the highest rate since 2000, uh, since 1985, and you know, they're turning, although processing, but 34 million cattle last year, so um, which is 37% of their herd. So, you know, a huge, huge turnoff. You know, that's their highest in record. But we haven't yet seen a material knock on um, benefit for us, but you would absolutely have to think that's, that's right around the corner. So, the reduction in production. Uh, domestically, uh, just from a numbers point of view, uh, eventually gets past the tipping point, even if they keep liquidating uh, their cow herds. 34 million, that is a lot of meat, isn't it? God heavens. It, it is, and that's good perspective for us where their, you know, their turn off is uh, you know, four or five million more than our total herd. Yeah. But so they're turning off a lot of cattle, so they don't have to move that much percentage wise to have quite a big impact on the, the yeah. global trade. Yeah, now, the FTA with the UK, Jason, I keep reading negotiations are going very, very well. When will the FTA kick into action and we actually see Aussie meat on a boat heading to the UK? The, the technical process is once it goes, goes through the House of Lords, goes through the UK ratification, as part of the UK ratification process, um, it then goes through the Parliament. So it's, it's really a process set of activities now. The negotiation's actually done, so the content... Uh, of the FTA is, is done and being signed off. So it's just going through 
approval process now. And then once it's completed that, which we would expect it to be last quarter, but I expect it to be this quarter, um, in theory it can come into force 90 days after that. So the, the clock is certainly, the clock is certainly ticking to get to that point of, of, uh, increased access into the, into the UK. So when, before Christmas? Oh, I hope by the middle of the year. Uh, I hope, uh, you hope yeah, by the middle I'll, of the year you will have box beef on a ship to England. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's now funny. I'll get in trouble for that, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the timetable could have had us at last Christmas, but you know, the UK kept changing prime ministers. So um, we'll uh, there, there's real commitment to the agreement, Kerry, and there's noise, right? And there's particularly noise around the welfare. Um, requirements, but if you if you actually read the text in the welfare clause, I mean, well, whatever it's technically called, you know the, the welfare uh, component of the FTA, uh, it's very clear about both countries' commitment to welfare and our commitment to having good welfare practices, which of course we all are, but it's also very clear about the rights and obligations of each country to manage those things themselves. And there'll be things that we don't necessarily agree on between us as far as individual practices are concerned. But that welfare text is very clear about how we we manage those things. And most importantly for us is demonstrating how committed we are to good animal welfare and demonstrating the things that we do and how we manage that and and why things things might be different here than what they are in the UK. I'm sure. but that's actually not part of the current negotiation. Yes, I know, but it's been a, a, there was bluster about it, but I don't think people are going to take too much notice of it. But Jason, let's head to the real elephant in the room: the shortage of labour for virtually every abattoir in Australia. Can you offer any good news, close or impending, or is the problem going to stick around for a long time yet? I don't think I can offer any good news about those types of solutions that we need for that, Kerry. I think it's going to be with us for a for a while. I know our industry's working really hard on finding solutions and um, and that's probably what gives me um, you know confidence about our ability to manage it is our industry is incredibly good at you know, finding solutions to challenges that we have. And as we got out the other side of the most challenging constraints around COVID last year uh, we saw an increase in uh, foreign workers coming into the processing sector, but I think it's still running uh, a third or close to half less than what it peaked at prior to COVID. So that's a huge gap in the labour force. Uh, and you and you add to that the tightened labour environment that we have here as well. Uh, I think it's it's really really challenging. So so as an industry, how we think about those solutions, uh, which are um, they might be different ways of operating and different ways of you know, managing and running our plants operations, which I know all our, our processes are working on. They'll be components of how we we solve this longer term. But it, it's going to be one of the biggest industries, biggest issues for our supply chain this year is how we how we respond to that. At the top of the drought, we were processing 170k a week, 170,000 a week with our current workforce. I'm told. The maximum we could process is around 90,000. That's a massive difference. And, and the numbers of cattle are just booming and the number of cattle are going to be turned off, the cattle that are going to be turned off in the next six to eight months. What's going to happen? It's a perfect storm, isn't it? 
Um, yeah, maybe, but I think we are also seeing, like I say, the response of the processing sector about you know how to manage those challenges and constraints better. So you know we were we we're up over a hundred thousand um, per week being slaughtered towards the end of last year, and uh, we've already hit you know, eighty or more than eighty thousand in, in January this year when you know, not everybody's up operating yet. So. I think in a, when we look at it in a pure sense of how we might have done things three or four years ago, and, uh, if we take those same numbers and look at what we might be able to do now, I can see where that you know, 90 to 170 gap comes in. But I, I think our, our, pro, our processing sector is, you know, has been working on you know, how to manage this for, for a while, and it's absolutely going to be an issue. Um, but I, I think they're, you know, they're probably getting in front of it quicker than... That, that sort of numbers might indicate. We all have so. Uh, I suspect there'll be a lot of double and triple bookings being done between now and then. But good luck to them. Now, by the time these heavier cattle get to the abattoir, Jason, the specs will have changed for many of these cattle. It's, uh, as I say, for producers, it's a nightmare. But it's a nightmare for right across the chain, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it, it is. You know, if we end up with these heavier carcass weights, um, that that certainly does. Uh, in some cases create some challenge but but the, the beauty of our production system is that you know, we've got multiple markets and you know, 100 markets we go to now and there's there's very 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 few programs that are, are the old traditional full set program so most cattle that are coming in are being broken up and going to, to multiple endpoints so there's a fair bit of flex in in how much heavier we can get our carcass weights before it becomes a a huge problem with, uh, I think, average carcass weight to you know, the low 300s still, um, which is still probably not a bad spot. It's a, it's a bit, uh, 320 or 30 is a bit big for our domestic markets, our supermarkets, so and what carcass is that big. But for the export market, um, we can handle those carcass weights. Okay. Now, there were a couple of elephants in the room six months or so back, but they've disappeared. LSD and FMD. Both have dropped yeah. off the radar completely. MLA okay with measures so far, and what's your view on the possibilities at the present? I think the issues and risks around LSD and FMD are pretty similar to what they were six months or so ago. Uh, thankfully, what we've seen is a, a bunch of the hype and some of the irresponsible commentary drop out of the system, and. I think what's happened is the industry, um, both here and in you know, the markets like Indonesia, have got a, uh, a a better handle on exactly what is happening and uh, and how we actually manage and and prepare for that. And I think, unfortunately, what was happening in the early days is with a limited amount of information on a very specific but incredibly concerning issue. There was a lot of extrapolation of what it meant. Uh, which which created a lot of really unnecessary risk and concern, and um, and I think as we've understood more and seen more how that plays out, there's there's a number of things which are, have always been but remain really clear. We have really good biosecurity systems. We have systems that are structured to protect our borders and our our industries. They work pretty well. Challenges like this allow us to review those, which I think the government and the industry did uh, very, very sensibly and, and very critically. 
and we're now get, we have now been improving and strengthening our systems. And I think it's also given us the the impetus, motivation, um, focus to be uh, thinking about what else we need to do with our, our biosecurity, traceability, quality assurance programs as well. So while the heights come out of the discussion and the commentary, we in no way can we actually be complacent about them. They still are a significant risk for our industry, uh, but we manage these things really well. There's a reason why they're not here already. Uh, it's because of an industry we manage these things really well. However, they're a risk, and uh, we've, we've got to stay vigilant, definitely. Jason, final question. You spoke at that Senate inquiry into, I think it was called the cost of living. Saliard cattle prices have uh, shed considerable value in the past two or three months, yet retail prices have hardly moved. Surely retailers can do more to reduce meat prices accordingly. Uh, you can argue that they could, Kerry, but I think from an industry point of view, maintaining the value of our product with consumers is incredibly important. And one of the things that's important to remember is the context of where red meat sits. So red meat is one of the most popular staple uh, parts of an Australian diet and uh, the majority of households have beef in their uh, shopping basket every week and three quarters of the households have lamb in their shopping basket as well on a regular basis. But contribution to price, so contribution to actual price increases, when you look at the, the food and non-alcoholic beverages category, which AB um, has red meat in, it's gone up more than 9%. But of all those categories, red meat's gone up the least. It's only gone up 8.2%. So when you look at dairy products and cereals and others, they've all gone up more than red meat. So yes, red meat's gone up, but everything has. And I think one of the things about red meat being a focus is that it's such a staple of what we do. And gram for gram, it provides some of the best value. It's highly nutritious. It's a, like I say, it's a staple diet. It's a it's a very a staple of our diets. It's a, a key part of a uh, of a balanced diet. So yes, it's expensive or can be perceived as expensive, um, but it hasn't gone up in price as much as uh, any of those other items in the same category. So. So how and then sorry, one of the other things that's contributed to that is the consistency and quality of our product. So we've worked on getting a more consistent, high quality product through to our consumers, which is, is now worth more. So finding this balance of how we give consumers options to buy different cuts for different um, meal options so they can have a more economical, nutritious meal is important, but also maintaining the uh, the positioning of red meat as far as its uh, you know, nutritional content, contribution and value uh, that they get out of it as a staple is really important as well. Jason Strong, you have the biggest and uh, perhaps the toughest gig in the industry. Thank you again for being so generous with your time on The Grill for Beef Central. Thank you again. Thanks, Gary. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.